The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode 51 of The Murder of My Family. If you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast so that the show can continue to grow and reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurdermyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murdermyfam or by searching for The Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder my family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. Before we get started, I just wanted to ask that you'll please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear in the murder of my family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsors' support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you, and now on with the show. This episode is being released on December 21st, 2019. This is a week for many that is a time of celebration, or a time of reflection. For some, the last week of December and the Christmas holiday is a chance to spend time with family and the ones you love. The same was true for Melissa Taller Ellison, a young 20-year-old mother who was well-liked and had a bubbly personality. Better known to her friends and family as Missy, she was spending her Christmas with her baby daughter, 13-month-old Casey, 32 years ago this week. But before mother and daughter could ring in the new year together and welcome in 1988, Missy would be dead, the victim of a brutal attack. Who killed Missy Ellison, and why? Missy had recently separated from her husband Mark Ellison, and moved into a Jacksonville, Florida mobile home that her parents owned. Although she knew it would be challenging as a single mother, she was up for the challenge and wanted to make the best life she could for herself and Casey. Missy knew that she had family that could help her along the way. She also decided to move in two roommates, a man and a woman, knowing that the rent they paid would help with the bills. The arrangement seemed to be working. The extra income came in handy and Missy still had enough room for her and Casey to live comfortably. Christmas of 1987 came and went uneventfully. Everything seemed fine until the night of Monday, December 28, 1987, just three days after Christmas. 
At around 11.30 p.m., Missy called her mom, who lived in a mobile home a few hundred yards away, and during their phone conversation, she mentioned that she was afraid of something, but she wouldn't elaborate. Apparently, it didn't alarm Missy enough to tell her mom about it, and if she needed help, she knew that her parents could be there in a matter of minutes, if not seconds. The phone call ended without Missy explaining why she was afraid. Almost five hours later, between 4 a.m. and 4.30 a.m., claimed to have been awakened after hearing little Casey crying. When the female roommate came out of her room, she discovered Casey all alone on the couch in the living room. The roommate sat down on the couch with Casey and gave her a bottle before falling asleep on the couch with her. A short time later, maybe 10 to 15 minutes, the roommate was jolted awake by what sounded like a door slamming. She got up and investigated and made her way towards Missy's bedroom. She was greeted by her boyfriend, who was the male roommate. He was walking out of their bedroom, and he immediately told his girlfriend that he saw someone with a flashlight moving around in the hallway. But they had fled as he got up out of bed. The pair made their way towards Missy's bedroom, and once they walked inside, it was then that they discovered Missy's lifeless, bloodied, and beaten body. The couple called police, and they arrived on the scene pretty quickly. When police arrived, they examined the scene and Missy's body. They found her in a kneeling position with her head resting on the bed. There was blood coming from her nose, mouth, and ears. It appeared to them as if Missy was attacked while she slept. Some of the clues that awaited investigators were a charcoal or soot-like handprint on Missy's arm and dirty footprints leading down the hall from Missy's room. The murder weapon was located near the front door. It turned out to be a piece of firewood, blackened and charred from the fire. Police also found signs that a window at the opposite end of the mobile home from Missy's room may have been an entry point for an intruder. Outside the home, police found fresh, unidentified tire tracks on the back patio. Police seemed baffled early on. Who would break into Missy's trailer and make their way past multiple people and possible witnesses in order to attack and kill Missy? And what motive did they have? Obviously, since Missy and her husband Mark were separated and possibly heading for divorce, police turned their attention to him. Mark and Missy had allegedly argued the night before she was murdered, and that caught the attention of investigators. It's not clear how or if police ruled Mark out as a suspect in his wife's murder, but Mark Ellison steadfastly denied any involvement in Missy's murder. Police also questioned Missy's roommates in depth, perhaps considering them more than just witnesses. Some parts of their account didn't necessarily add up. As of now, it's unclear if investigators ruled them out as being persons of interest. Police also questioned neighbors. One neighbor told police that they had heard what sounded to be three or four people arguing outside between 2.30 and 3.30 a.m. This is approximately one to two hours before police were called after Missy's body was discovered. After the arguing ended, it sounded to the neighbor as if a car left at a high rate of speed, spinning its tires, but he couldn't add anything more than that. Missy's family was devastated when they were told that she was dead. She left behind four sisters, but police asked them to do something very difficult. They wanted them to walk around the mobile home and see if there was anything unusual or out of the ordinary, perhaps something out of place. 
That's when the family members noticed that two photos of Missy were missing from her mantle. In the missing photos, Missy is on a beach wearing a bikini. There's been some confusion in the ensuing years. There's been some confusion in the ensuing years whether or not the photos were removed by an investigator or if someone else took them. And the night after Missy's murder, things got stranger. Police received a 911 call from an unidentified man. The caller referenced Missy as the girl in the trailer park and said, I'm sorry, I had to do it. Unfortunately, that 911 call didn't lead to any breaks in the case, and the caller was never identified. Despite some clues that investigators had to work with, they never had anything solid enough to make an arrest, and eventually, Missy's case went cold. Besides an occasional news article or a two-minute clip about the case on the local news, Missy's case hasn't gotten a lot of attention. One group that has tried to focus on the case and keep it front and center is ProjectColdCase.org, which is an organization focused on unsolved cold cases and getting them attention so they won't wind up forgotten about. In the aftermath of her mother's murder, Casey grew up understandably with lots of mixed emotions and unanswered questions. Both Missy's and Mark's family shared custody of Casey for a time, but as we see sometimes in those kinds of situations, that can lead to friction between the families, and that's what happened in Casey's case, which ultimately led to the shared custody agreement ending and Casey's father's family eventually getting full custody. Casey grew up and tried to move on with her life the best she could, but there was no denying that not having her mom in her life was devastating for her. Recently, Casey has begun to look more into her mom's case, something that's been very difficult for her to do. She's also started trying to reunite with her mom's family. All of that has been a lot for her to deal with, and she's struggled with it. But she also wants to know why her mom was killed, and who was responsible. She doesn't want her mom's case forgotten. As hard as it's been for Casey to open up about her mom's murder three decades ago, and what her life has been like since, Casey decided to sit down and talk with me. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hi, Casey, and thanks for coming on to discuss your mom's case with us. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for having me. You were so little when your mom was murdered. You were only 13 months old. Uh, So you were robbed of getting a chance to live your lives together. When you think about that, does that make you more sad or angry or some kind of combination of those two things? It's actually not a feeling that I can describe in one word. It's absolutely a combination of several different words. Um, I think that the most that I've actually really given it thought, like it's actually affected me more now as an adult that I have my own children than it's ever had a chance to affect me any other milestone of my life. Um, because of how old I was when it happened and the sensitivity of the case, I didn't know any different. You know, I grew up without her from year one. So that was the life that I knew. 
but as an adult now with children of your own, you know the importance of that bond and, and what you missed out on, I, I take it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like small things of, you know, having somebody to call and ask for motherly advice or have somebody call and ask, you know, hey, can you come over and help me or just hang out with me while I'm like, doing laundry or just spend time with me or, you know, there, I, I don't have, that's a big void. It's a, um, it's tough. And, you know, I, I had a great life growing up. Um, there's obviously some things that you learn not to do by example of, you know, other people having roles in my life that my mother did not because she wasn't present. And so now that I'm older and I see that unconditional love, it puts a lot of things in a different perspective. And I'm able to see by different examples of, of how to be the mom that I didn't have. And that makes me miss her. That makes me angry and sad. And it makes me feel a description of a word that I'm not sure how to describe. I like a non-emotion because it happened when I was so young and it was so long ago that this has been my life and this is the only life that I have known. I've only known to be without her. So I feel a sense of guilt. Uh, I don't know if it's a survivor's remorse at the fact that I'm missing or mourning a void that has always been there or if it's an anger because it's gone this long with absolutely no closure, no story, no justice, and the different levels of uncertainty and the amount of questions that don't add up and pieces that are missing that don't make sense. There's an emotion that I'm not sure how to feel because, or how to describe even, because of the possibilities of the entire situation, if that makes sense. Yeah, it um, does. And so. I, I don't think we can underline the importance of uh, that relationship with your mother enough, because I think it's so important to all children, especially it seems like that bond between a mother and daughter is just one that you can't, uh, Yeah, it's, it's incomparable. It, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, that's who teaches you how to be the woman that you are growing up to be like. You know, that sets the example when it comes to your personality. You know, you're a personality of your parents, your genetics. So when you're not with that personality, there's, you know, almost a teaching that's being missed. There's almost a, a mimic that you are trying to uphold yourself and you have no example of what to do. Um, and that's, that's difficult being a mom because I don't know what the right way to handle certain things are. I know how certain things were handled to me and 
I don't want to handle things that way. And I can only imagine how things are handled, you know, how they would have been handled had it have been by her, um, with her personality and as bubbly as they say that she was and, and the stories that I hear even 32 years later, you know, what a joy she was to be around. Those are things that I am very sad that I didn't have the opportunity to get to know my mom on that level. And that leads me to to the question I was going to ask you, since you didn't really get to know your mom in that way, you've had to learn everything about her from my assume family and friends and based on what you've been able to piece together about her, can you tell us a little bit about your mom and what kind of person she was, what she was like? Absolutely. She was silly. All of the stories that I've heard are just absolute silly stories. Like, she was very gullible. Um, she was bubbly and had a great personality and can make anybody laugh. Just walk in a room and it was full of sunshine. Her funeral was barely standing room only if that tells you anything. I mean, the procession to her, to her funeral was over four, four miles long. And she had just, it was full of flowers. And that, you know, like it was like the world got darker when she left. It put such a negative imprint on my family's life that it was like joy was stolen. So that just, need you to believe that she was great. And I have heard so many stories from random people because we favor each other so much. And I've become more known in the social media because of my story and the foundation that I've started because of my story that people will recognize me that she's gone to high school with or that knew her from local here. And they would tell me a story about her or say, you know, how they couldn't believe that something like this could happen to someone like her. And it just makes you feel like she was a good person and she sorely missed. I've covered a few cases in which someone's young child is in the home when, when their parent is murdered at the time of the murder. And, and sometimes those children are harmed and sometimes they're not. But luckily in your case, you weren't physically harmed. Is that correct? Correct. After your mom's murder, what happened to you? Did you go to live with family? Yes. After my mom's murder, um, my dad's side of the family and my mom's side of the family fought over me heavily. Um, We had years and years of court back and forth. So it was a custody arrangement that where... I was with them every other weekend and two weeks out of the month or out of the summer, two weeks out of the summer. And the day after every holiday, I was with my mother's side of the family. And then the rest of the time I was with my father's side of the family. And was that tough for you growing up having to, to sort of bounce back and forth like that? Yes, it was, it was really tough. Yeah. And I, I think for any child that's in any kind of battle like that, custody uh, related, that that can be very tough for them to, to deal with all of that. And then you're already missing your mom. So that probably compounded things. Yeah. And it was really hard to see, you know, the way that my mom was killed was 
you know, not the conventional, it was, it was a passion crime. It was somebody came in and beat my mom to death. So the grief and the not closure and the constant questions and the running around the rabbit trails, it was really difficult to see my mother's side of the family disintegrate the way that it did. And grief and that heavy weight of burden of not knowing and that side of depression, I saw what depression can do to someone and I wanted to not ever be a part of that. Like I, I never wanted to get to that point. Like, I mean, I can completely as an adult now understand that depth of feeling. I mean, can you imagine you would never want to, you know, I don't want to ever imagine God forbid it, but I understand it. And I saw that growing up and that was so difficult to see that side just guilt and just have no luster in life left. And then be with my dad's side of the family who, you know, I lived a great life. I can't sit and say that it was all bad because it wasn't. My dad ended up remarrying and, you know, they were married for the majority of my life. Um, they're not together anymore and that's fine, but, you know, she taught me a lot of survival skills and she was my mother's substitute. And, you know, we, she taught me what I needed to survive. So I was able to have a little bit of both. Um, and it was just very difficult to see at that time that one could potentially be more toxic than the other. Um, and so when I turned 12, I didn't, I wasn't able to go there anymore. Um, the custody was agreed that it would no longer be split. And I went to my father's side um, of the family. And, you know, I lived a great life. I was an honorable student. I was in clubs and a cheerleader and I did all the great American things. And, you know, here we are. Um, I, when I turned about 17 or 18, I got back together with my mom's side of the family and tried to establish a relationship then. And we have continued to establish the relationship um, and try to thrive with it. And, you know, it's only gotten better. Life is continually only getting better. Um, you know, and, and I think it was, it was really difficult because, you know, let's just go ahead and bring the elephant in the room. Like the case has been addressed now, you know, in the media. And there were so many speculations that it was difficult to hear the background noise. That was the worst part was the background noise of there being no answers. So people made up their own answers 
somebody had to be blamed for a heinous crime that nobody was ever even questioned really about, you know? Um, Was there anyone that you think took the blame maybe unfairly overall? My dad did. Absolutely. He was always the one that my mother's side of the family blamed. Um, because that was her husband, you know, of course that's, you, you see it on any media outlet, you see it on absolutely any post, you see it on anything. The first thing somebody says is her husband because of the type of crime that it was. And that's all that I ever heard growing up. There was no other option. But then I'm with my father and that side of the family and he's showing me the only love that I know, you know, he's showing me compassion and he's showing me there's absolutely no way that he's capable of doing something like this. There's no way. So the going back and forth was that growth period. That was the most struggle for me was having to be able to discern my own opinion without anyone else's. That sounds like a, a very tough situation to be in. Yeah, it's still a very tough situation to be in. You talked a little bit about hearing stuff or uh, having to sort of deal with those um, accusations or whatever. How much did your family talk about when you were a child, your mom's, murder did you grow up knowing what happened to her from an early age or did they sit aside at some point and and talk about it i i don't remember them ever sitting me aside at one point and talking about it i just feel like i've always known like i feel like it's just never been not talked about i know that based on what we talked about earlier you feel in a way that you have just been able to really talk about the case that the case itself is really just getting talked about fairly recently. How, how recently did that happen for you? So I turned 33 this November and this December 28th of 2019 will be 32 years. February of 2019 was when Project Cold Case picked up our case. So February of 2019 was the first time anybody has talked about her case since 1989. Did you feel that the the case itself was forgotten or or or, somehow missing or... Absolutely. I felt like the case was just unsolvable. I felt like the case was absolutely forgotten about. I felt like she was forgotten about, and I felt like it was a piece of my life that I had to lie about. Did you almost feel some kind of shame or something for for being part of it part of the story yes i felt 
I'm going to say shame. Sure. Um, shame because I felt guilt. Shame because I felt like everybody wanted me to move on from it. Um, even though my mother's side of the family was hurting so bad, like I, so project cold case picked up the case in February. And then in April, Katie Jeffries did the segment on unsolved in the beginning of April. And then my mother's mother died this April 18th of 2019. So she died without knowing who killed her daughter. And I watched her just mourn and grieve for the last 31 years of this. When she was going through all of the understanding that this was, you know, this is it. Like, this is the last of the line. She would talk about it more. And she would be really bitter. So much bitterness. Because if you sit here and you look at the case and you look at the paper clippings and you talk to the detectives and you do all of the scenarios in your mind, it will drive you absolutely mad at all of the different things that could have happened. It could have been a burglary. It could have been the roommates. It could have been somebody that was a serial killer. It could have been somebody that was just happened to be in the trailer park that night. You know, it's a trailer park. Like we're talking maybe 20 trailers. It wasn't a huge mobile home facility. It was a little in the middle of nowhere before Normandy was even built up here on the west side of Jacksonville trailer park. And her parents, my grandparents, lived less than 500 feet away. And all of this stuff happened right there. And nobody knows anything. It will drive you absolutely mad. So there were people that felt like I should be over it. Like it was an inconvenience to discuss it. It was either the potential that it could have been my father because of the nature of the crime and because that was her husband and because they were separated. He had all of the motive in the world. But his character doesn't show that. His character is completely different from someone that you would imagine could do something like that. You know, they've had to have some type of a karmatic life and it just didn't add up. So having to defend my father to my mother's side of the family every time I was there was tough. You don't want to hear that your parents were not in love. You don't want to hear that the person that's supposed to be your example of a father could be something like this. That's so much toxicity and it's hurtful. And to see that it was never resolved and there was so many questions, there was so much anger and there was so much bitterness and there was so much pointing of fingers and just hurt and a huge void that was absolutely never even addressed that it was just ignored. Like it was too big to deal with. 
that it became inconvenient to even speak about it. That was what it was like. Has having a voice now been uh, any kind of um, therapeutic or has it helped you in any way or is, is it really tough talking about the case now? It's a mixture of all of the above. It's tough to talk about it because I've never talked about it, so I'm not sure what to say. Um, and then also because it is an unsolved case and I want to maintain the integrity of it. But at the same time, I want to talk about it because in my heart, I do not believe that it was my father. In my heart, I don't at all believe that he had anything to do with it. I believe that it was the roommates that have more of a story that they need to tell. I feel like their story doesn't add up. And I now know that one of the roommates has passed away. And, you know, somebody knows something. And it makes me want to talk about it because I want to be able to have the answer. I just want a story. And I want the peace for my family. I want the closure. The justice portion of it to me is not going to repair the damage that it's done to my family with not having the answers, with not having the closure. And my grandmother passing away in the bitterness that she did. But it it doesn't matter about the justice portion for me. Does she deserve justice? Absolutely. But justice in this point is not going to solve anything anymore. I just want the closure to be able to move on so that she can rest in peace and so that my family can move on. But at the same time, I don't want to bring, like, it's either radically going to change my life or it's not. So it's almost like a Pandora's box when you think about it sometimes. Hopefully it's not. Hopefully it's someone that I have no idea that it is. And we can move on and there can be closure. And then it makes me angry because you read the newspaper reports and you see, if this were to have happened today, this murder would be solved within hours. Hours. At a minimal. And it's been... 32 years almost, there was such a lack of duty per the reports from these investigators that there was, it was just absolutely poor evidential gathering. It was just poor. And there's no reason at all that this case should have gone this long without being solved. And that in itself is frustrating. Well, it sounds like as tough a road as it's been for you after all these years that uh, you still want to go forward and, and keep your mom's case out there and hopefully generate some kind of interest or knowledge in the case so people don't forget about it. Absolutely, I do. I want my mother's case to be solved. I'm ready for this to not be an ongoing question anymore. I'm ready for the closure because, you know, I've, my mom was taken from me and I watched my grandmother die because of it. I, I don't want to run the same treadmill for another 32 years. I saw how much it aged her. 
she was 69 years old and she looked like she was over a hundred just because of the grief and the burden and the pain that she carried with just the absolute no story and the no sense that the whole situation makes. I don't, I don't want that burden anymore. I don't want to wonder what happened anymore. I just want to know what happened so I can move on and have peace about it. Have you started or are there any uh, type of Facebook or social media pages about your mom or her case out there? Project Cold Case has picked up the case. Uh, So they have a full article on the police reports and Katie Jeffries from First Coast News has a segment on Unsolved. She also has her own In Memory Facebook page. And then her story is on both our Change the Face of Depression website. Um, You can visit that at ctfod.com or changethefaceofdepression.com. And that has a full page of all of her page information. I've also written two books about, it's kind of a memorabilia, fiction based on true events and it's called waterproof mascara and makeup sex makeup sex will be published at the end of 2019 and where can people find those at they're available at amazon and um, books a million barnesandnoble.com can you tell me a little bit about your organization and and how that came to be and what you do absolutely I have started a charity. It's a nonprofit foundation. It's called Change the Face of Depression. And it is a foundation that is centered on self-care and the importance of implementing it. When you suffer from depression, self-care is the first to go. And depression spares absolutely no walk of life. It can affect any family dynamic, any person, any situation. And it it is a battle that you have to learn how to conquer every single day. So with Change the Face of Depression, what we do is there's several different ways that we give back to the community. The three biggest ways that we work in the community is we do selfie care kits, which are kits of self-care items that you would have based on different levels of where you are in your self-care. They are homeless levels of what you would need if you had to start all over. Um, like literally leaving one night and this is all I have to survive on the bare essentials when it comes to, um, the point after that, it would be when you're back into society to be able to go on job interviews and you're going to be your absolute best. It's the ability to get an interview outfit and a mini makeover, um, and just to fully shoot for a self-esteem booster. Um, so those are different levels of care and then we do a wellness Wednesday where on Wednesdays we give away different things to do in the community to get you out to get you moving to get you trying new things and that's also to conquer hey we made it another week you know like look at us go there's no going backwards from here and then one of the biggest things that we do in the community is the love yourself event the weekend before Valentine's Day we do a major event um, hosted at an institute where different bodies of schools and different companies and additional foundations that are correlating to ours come in and they are able to display their 
perception of art and beauty with assisting in many makeovers and photo shoots. The last two years, we've been able to have a VEDA Institute open up their doors to host us. This coming year, we will be doing it in Tampa. The Tampa Bay Institute of Aveda is going to be opening their doors on February 9th of 2020. All day, it's a Sunday from 10 until 4 p.m. And the students and the institute instructors, as well as anybody affiliated with Aveda, will come in and donate their skill to give a hairstyle and a blowout. We have the Tampa Fade Masters are coming in to donate their skill for barbers and doing uppercuts and straight shaves. Um, and then we have award-winning artists that are coming in as photographers to showcase their skill with mini photo shoots. So everybody is welcome to come in and it's a source for resources. We have donations that will be coming in for self-care bags to give to all of our attendees. Kirk's Soaps has donated soap give everybody. We have several different companies that are donating wellness items to get people out, to get them moving in the community, to help with depression, to make it a celebration of yourself. And then whenever you're done going through all of the wellness stations, you're treated to a photo shoot for a self-esteem booster. And that way it brings all the community and all the mental health advocacies together as, again, a source for resources to help anyone that needs to come over the side effects of depression and help boost your inner self and see that there's no going backwards from here. So that is change the face of depression. And I started change the face of depression because I suffered from depression with, um, a lot of the trauma that has gone on from, you know, 13 months old until, I was able to understand what that trauma was and work on actually fixing it instead of putting band-aids over bullet holes. I created Change the Face of Depression to be the voice that I needed. And it, it sounds like some really good work and some really important work. One thing that's really important is if anyone out there listening to this knows anything about what happened to your mom, who should they contact? If they would like to leave any anonymous tips, they can call Crime Stoppers, and Crime Stoppers will actually offer a reward for anyone that brings any type of information leading to the arrest in the case. For the First Coast Crime Stoppers, their phone number is one eight six six eight four five tips and that's eight four seven seven. You can also call the Duval County Jacksonville Sheriff's Office, the Homicide Division. You can talk to Detective Workentin. He is in charge of the Homicide Division and he'll be able to assist you in any questions or any type of information that you may be able to provide. And one final thing I, I wanted to mention I've heard you make statements to the person or people that took your mom away that although she may be gone in a way she lives on, what did you mean by that exactly? And how important was that message to you? When I said that, I wanted them to understand that you cannot kill someone's spirit. 
And through her spirit, I want her to be able to live on and understand you can also have a beautiful impact from something so horrible, an impact for impact. And because I was impacted by this person in such a negative way by them taking my mother from me, I want to impact the world in a better way than the world impacted me. And so that's why I have started the foundation Change the Face of Depression. And I'm telling my story to those that have struggled with the depths of trauma and trying to put band-aids over bullet holes to be able to get on with life and say that there is life beyond this point. That's what I mean by they didn't, they didn't take her. They didn't kill her. She still lives on. And she's going to live on in the memory of her and the spirit of her to know that it's an impact for impact. Well, it's been 32 years, and, and I hope that before the time it reaches another anniversary, I'm hoping that somehow you get answers and, and get some kind of uh, peace from, from finding out who did it, and uh, maybe they can face justice. Thank you so much. Me too. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. Just a reminder, if you have any information about Missy's murder, please call the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office at 904-630-0500. Or to remain anonymous, call First Coast Crime Stoppers at 866-845-TIPS. If you enjoyed this episode, please introduce a friend of the podcast and invite them to listen. I just want to let everyone know that this is my last episode before I take a holiday break. I'll be back with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family on January 11, 2020. And I just wanted to take this opportunity to wish everyone listening happy holidays and a happy new year. And although I won't have a new episode coming out until January 11th, on January 2nd I'll be releasing a very special audio that I hope you'll listen to, something that I look forward to sharing with you. So please be on the lookout for that. As we wrap up this episode, I'd like to invite you to listen to a preview of a true crime podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. It's called Women in Crime. Be sure to give it a listen. And before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. In the last several years, criminologists have really begun to focus on the topic of women in crime. This interest has inspired Amy and I to create a podcast devoted entirely to true stories about women in crime. Twice a month, we will discuss individual stories of women who have been victims of crime or perpetrators. Sometimes these two are one and the same. We will also choose cases in which women have been falsely accused, exonerated, or women whose work in the criminal justice system has brought them notoriety. By staying true to our criminologist roots, we will tell you the full stories of these women, but we will also explain the cause of the events that happened and whether the criminal justice system got it right or not. No matter what, this podcast will focus on women in crime all of the time. So stay tuned. Women in Crime is available now.